Section 17 of the Animal Storybook, edited by Andrew Lang. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matt Bishop. Section 17 of the Animal Storybook. Monsieur Dumas and His Beasts. Chapters 7 through 9 by Mrs. Lang. In order to lead to more incidents in the life of Pritchard, I must now tell my readers that I had a friend called Charpillon, who had a passion for poultry, and kept the finest hens in the whole department of Yon. These hens were chiefly cochins and brahmapatras. They laid the most beautiful brown eggs, and Charpillon surrounded them with every luxury and never would allow them to be killed. He had the inside of his hen-house painted green, in order that the hens, even when shut up, might fancy themselves in a meadow. In fact, the illusion was so complete that when the hen-house was first painted, the hens refused to go in at night, fearing to catch cold. But after a short time, even the least intelligent among them understood that she had the good fortune to belong to a master who knew how to combine the useful with the beautiful. Whenever these hens ventured out upon the road, strangers would exclaim with delight, Oh, what beautiful hens! To which someone better acquainted with the wonders of this fortunate village would reply, I should think so. These are M. Charpillon's hens. Or, if the speaker were of an envious disposition, he might add, Yes, indeed, hens that nothing is thought too good for. When my friend Charpillon heard that I had returned from Paris, he invited me to come and stay with him to shoot, adding as a further inducement that he would give me the best and freshest eggs I had ever eaten in my life. Though I did not share Charpillon's great love of poultry, I am very fond of fresh eggs, and the nankeen-colored eggs laid by his Brahma hens had an especially delicate flavor. But all earthly pleasures are uncertain. The next morning Charpillon's hens were found to have only laid three eggs instead of eight. Such a thing had never happened before, and Charpillon did not know whom to suspect. However, he suspected everyone rather than his hens, and a sort of cloud began to obscure the confidence he had hitherto placed in the security of his enclosures. While these gloomy doubts were occupying us, I observed Michel hovering about as if he had something on his mind and asked him if he wanted to speak to me. I should be glad to have a few words with you, sir. In private? It would be better so, for the honor of Pritchard. Ah, indeed. What has the rascal been doing now? You remember, sir, what your solicitor said to you one day when I was in the room? What did he say, Michel? My solicitor is a clever man, and says many sensible things. Still, it is difficult for me to remember them all. Well, sir, he said, find out whom the crime benefits, and you will find the criminal. I remember that axiom perfectly, Michel. Well, well, sir, whom can this crime of stolen eggs benefit more than Pritchard? Pritchard? You think it was he who stole the eggs? Pritchard, who brings home eggs without breaking them? You mean who used to bring them? Pritchard is an animal who has vicious instincts, sir, and if he does not come to a bad end some day, I shall be surprised, that's all. Does Pritchard eat eggs, then? 
He does. And it is only right to say, sir, that that is your fault. What? My fault? My fault that Pritchard eats eggs? Michel shook his head sadly, but nothing could shake his opinion. Now really, Michel, this is too much. Is it not enough that critics tell me that I pervert everybody's mind with my corrupt literature? But you must join my detractors and say that my bad example corrupts Pritchard? I beg pardon, sir, but do you remember how one day at Villa Medicis, while you were eating an egg, M. Rusconi, who was there, said something so ridiculous that you let the egg fall upon the floor? I remember that quite well. And do you remember calling in Pritchard, who was scraping up a bed of fuchsias in the garden, and making him lick up the egg? I do not remember him scraping up a bed of fuchsias. But I do recollect that he licked up my egg. Well, sir, it is that and nothing else that has been his ruin. Oh, he is quick enough to learn what is wrong. There is no need to show him twice. Michel, you are really extremely tedious. How have I shown Pritchard what is wrong? By making him eat an egg. You see, sir, before that he was as innocent as a newborn babe. He didn't know what an egg was. He thought it was a badly made golf ball. But as soon as you make him eat an egg, he learns what it is. Three days afterwards, M. Alexandra came home and was complaining to me of his dog, that he was rough and tore things with his teeth in carrying them. Ah, look at Pritchard, I said to him. How gentle he is. You shall see the way he carries an egg. So I fetched an egg from the kitchen placed it on the ground and said, Fetch Pritchard. Pritchard didn't need to be told twice. But what do you think the cunning rascal did? You remember some days before, Monsieur, the gentleman who had such a bad toothache, you know, you recollect him coming to see you? Yes, of course I remember. Well, Pritchard pretended not to notice, but those yellow eyes of his noticed everything. Well, all of a sudden he pretended to have the same toothache that that gentleman had. And crack goes the egg. Then he pretends to be ashamed of his awkwardness. He swallows it in a hurry. Shell and all. I believed him. I thought it was an accident and fetched another egg. Scarcely did he make three steps with the egg in his mouth and the toothache comes on again. And crack goes the second egg. I began then to suspect something. I went and got a third, but if I hadn't stopped then he'd have eaten a whole basketful. So then M. Alexandria, who likes his joke, said, Michel, you may possibly make a good musician of Pritchard, or a good astronomer, but he'll never be a good incubator. How is it that you never told me this before, Michel? Because I was ashamed, sir, for this is not the worst. What? Not the worst? Michel shook his head. He has developed an unnatural craving for eggs. He got into M. McCoyer's poultry yard and stole all his. M. McCoyer came to complain to me. How do you suppose he lost his foot? You told me yourself. In somebody's grounds where he had forgotten to read the notice about trespassing. You are joking, sir. But really, I believe he can read. Oh, Michel, 
Pritchard is accused of enough sins without having that vice laid on his charge. But about his foot? I think he caught it in some wire getting out of a poultry yard. But you know it happened at night, and the hens are shut up at night. How could he get into the hen house? He doesn't need to get into the hen house after eggs. He can charm the hens. Pritchard is what one might call a charmer. Michelle, you astonish me more and more. Yes, indeed, sir. I knew that he used to charm the hens at the Villa Medicis. Only M. Charbelon has such wonderful hens. I did not think they would have allowed it. What I see now all hens are alike. Then you think it is Pritchard who... I think he charms M. Charbelon's hens. And that is the reason they don't lay. At least, that is, that they only lay for Pritchard. Indeed, Michelle. I should much like to know how he does it. If you are awake very early tomorrow, sir, just look out your window. You can see the poultry yard from it, and you will see a sight that you have never seen before. I have seen many things, Michel, including sixteen changes of governments, and to see something I have never seen before I would gladly sit up the whole night. There is no need for that. I can wake you at the right time. The next day at early dawn, Michel awoke me. I am ready, Michel, said I, coming to the window. Wait, wait, let me open it very gently. If Pritchard suspects that he is being watched, he won't stir. You have no idea how deceitful he is. Michel opened the window with every possible precaution. From where I stood, I could distinctly see the poultry yard and Pritchard lying in his couch, his head innocently resting upon his two forepaws. At the slight noise which Michel made in opening the window, Pritchard picked up his ears and half opened his yellow eye, but as the sound was not repeated he did not move. Ten minutes afterwards we heard a newly wakened hens began to cluck. Pritchard immediately opened both eyes, stretched himself and stood upright upon his three feet. He then cast a glance all around him, and seeing that all was quiet, disappeared into a shed and the next moment we saw him coming out of a sort of little window on the other side. From this window Pritchard easily got upon the sloping roof which overhung one side of the poultry yard. He had now only to jump down about six feet, and having got onto the enclosure he lay down flat in front of the henhouse, giving a little friendly bark. A hen looked out at Pritchard's call, and instead of seeming frightened, she went to him at once and received his compliments with apparent complacency. Nor did she seem at all embarrassed, but proceeded to lay her egg, and that within such easy reach of Pritchard that we had not time to see the egg, it was swallowed the same instant. She then retired cackling triumphantly, and her place was taken by another hen. Well now, sir, said Michelle. When Pritchard had swallowed his fourth egg, you see it is no wonder that Pritchard has such a clear voice. You know great singers always eat raw eggs the first thing in the morning. I know that, Michel, but what I don't know is how Pritchard proposes to get out of the poultry yard. Just wait and see what the scoundrel will do. Pritchard, having finished his breakfast, or being a little alarmed at some noise in the house, stood up on his hind leg and slipping one of his forepaws through the bars of the gate, 
he lifted the latch and went out. And when one thinks, said Michelle, that if anybody asked him why the yard door was left open, he would say it was because Pierre had forgotten to shut it last night. You think he would have the wickedness to say that, Michelle? Perhaps not today, nor yet tomorrow, because he has not come to his full growth. But some day, mind you, I should not be surprised to hear him speak. Chapter 8 Before going out to school that day, I thought it only right to give M. Sharpelon an account of Pritchard's proceedings. He regarded him, therefore, with mingled feelings in which admiration was more prominent than sympathy, and it was agreed that on our return the dog should be shut up in a stable, and that the stable door should be bolted and padlocked. Pritchard, unsuspicious of our designs, ran on in front with the proud step and with his tail in the air. You know, said Sharpelon, that neither men nor dogs are allowed to go into the vineyards. I ought as magistrate to set an example, and Gagny still more as he is the mayor. So mind you keep in, Pritchard. All right, said I. I will keep him in. But Michel, approaching, suggested that I should send Pritchard home with him. It would be safer, he said. We are quite near the house, and I have a notion that he might get us into some scrape by hunting in the vineyards. Don't be afraid, Michel. I have thought of a plan to prevent him. Michel touched his hat. I know you are clever, sir, very clever, but don't think you are as clever as that. Wait till you see. Indeed, sir, you will have to be quick, for there is Pritchard hunting already. We were just in time to see Pritchard disappear into a vineyard, and a moment afterwards he raised a covey of partridges. Call in your dog, cried Gagny. I called Pritchard, who, however, turned a deaf ear. Catch him, I said to Michel. Michel went, and returned a few minutes later with Pritchard in a leash. In the meantime I had found a long stake, which I had hung crosswise round his neck, and let him go loose with this ornament. Pritchard understood that he could no longer go through the vineyards, but the stake did not prevent his hunting, and he only went a good deal further off on the open ground. From this moment there was only one shout all along the line. Hold in your dog. Confound him. Keep in your Pritchard, can't you? He's sending all the birds out of shot. Look here. Would you mind my putting a few pellets into your brute of a dog? How can anybody shoot if he won't keep in? Michel, said I, catch Pritchard again. I told you so, sir. Luckily, we are not far from the house. I can still take him back. Not at all. I have a second idea. Catch Pritchard. After all, said Michel, this is nearly as good fun as if we were shooting. And by and by he came back, dragging Pritchard by his stake. Pritchard had a partridge in his mouth. Look at him, the thief, said Michel. He has carried off M. Gagny's partridge. I see him looking for it. Put the partridge in your game bag, Michel. We will give him a surprise. Michel hesitated. But, said he, think of the opinion this rascal will have of you. What, Michel? Do you think Pritchard has a bad opinion of me? Oh, sir, a shocking opinion. 
But what makes you think so? Why, sir, do you not think that Pritchard knows in his soul and conscience that he brings you a bird that another gentleman has shot? He is committing a theft? I think he has an idea of it, certainly, Michel. Well then, sir, if he knows he is a thief, he must take you for a receiver of stolen goods. Look at the articles of code. It is said there that receivers are equally guilty with thieves and should be similarly punished. Michel, you open my eyes to a whole vista of terrors, but we are going to try to cure Pritchard of hunting. When he is cured of hunting, he will be cured of stealing. Never, sir, you will never cure Pritchard of his vices. Still I pursued my plan, which was to put Pritchard's foreleg through his collar. By this means his right forefoot being fastened to his neck, and his left hind foot being cut off, he had only two to run with, the left forefoot and the right hind foot. Well, indeed, said Michel, if he can hunt now, the devil is in it. He loosed Richard, who stood for a moment as if astonished, but once he had balanced himself, he began to walk, then to trot, then, as he found his balance better, he succeeded in running quicker on his two hind legs than many dogs would have done on four. Where are we now, sir? said Michel. It's that beast of a stake that balances him. I replied, a little disappointed. We ought to teach him to dance upon the tightrope. He would make our fortunes as an acrobat. You are joking again, sir. But listen, do you hear that? The most terrible imprecations against Pritchard were resounding on all sides. The imprecations were followed by a shot, then by a howl of pain. That is Pritchard's voice, said Michel. Well, it is no more than he deserves. Pritchard appeared the next moment with the hair in his mouth. Michel, you said that was Pritchard that howled. I would swear to it, sir, but how could he howl with the hair in his mouth? Michel scratched his head. It was he all the same, he said, and he went to look at Pritchard. Oh, sir, he said, I was right. The gentleman he took the hair from has shot him. His hind leg is all over blood. Look, there is M. Charpillon running after his hair. You know that I have just put some pellets into your Pritchard. Charpillon called out as soon as he saw me. You did quite right. He carried off my hair. There, you see, said Michel. It is impossible to cure him. But when he carried away your hair, he must have had it in his mouth. Of course, where else would he have it? But how could he howl with the hair in his mouth? He put it down to howl, then he took it up again and made off. There's deceit for you, gentlemen, exclaimed Michel. Pritchard succeeded in bringing the hair to me, but when he reached me he had to lie down. I say, said Charplon, I hope I haven't hurt him more than I intended. It was a long shot, and forgetting his hair, Charplon knelt down to examine Pritchard's wound. It was a serious one. Pritchard had received five or six pellets about the region of his tail, and was bleeding profusely. Oh, poor beast! cried Charpillon. I wouldn't have fired that shot for all the hairs in creation if I had known. 
Bah, said Michel, he won't die of it. And, in fact, Pritchard, after spending three weeks in the vet at St. Germain's, returned to Monte Cristo, perfectly cured, and with his tail in the air once more. Chapter 9 Soon after the disastrous event which I have just related, the revolution of 1848 occurred in France, in which King Louis-Philippe was dethroned and a republic established. You will ask what the change of government had to do with my beasts? Well, although, happily, they do not trouble their heads about politics, the revolution did affect them a good deal, for the French public, being excited by these occurrences, would not buy my books, preferring to read the guillotine, the Red Republic, and such like the corrupt periodicals, so that I became for the time a very much poorer man. I was obliged greatly to reduce my establishment. I sold my three horses and my two carriages for a quarter of their value, and I presented the last of Lelaine Manoir's potish and Mademoiselle de Gossens to the Jardin de Plantes in Paris. I had to move into a smaller house, but my monkeys were lodged in a palace. This is a sort of thing that sometimes happens after a revolution. Misouf also profited by it, for he regained his liberty on the departure of the monkeys. As to Diogenes, the vulture, I gave him to my worthy neighbor Collinet, who keeps the restaurant Henry the Fourth, and makes such good cutlets at Alabilanes. There was no fear of Diogenes dying of hunger under his new master's care. On the contrary, he improved greatly in health and beauty, and, doubtless as a token of gratitude to Colene, he laid an egg for him every year, a thing he never dreamt of doing for me. Lastly, we requested Pritchard to cease to keep the open house, and to discontinue his daily invitations to strange dogs to dine and sleep. I was obliged to give up all thoughts of shooting that year. It is true that Pritchard still remained to me. But then, Pritchard, you must recollect, he had only three feet. He had been badly hurt when he was shot by Charpelan. And the revolution of February had occasioned the loss of one eye. It happened one day during that exciting period that Michel was so anxious to see what was going on that he forgot to give Pritchard his dinner. Pritchard therefore invited himself to dine with the vulture, but Diogenes, being of a less sociable turn, and not in a humor to be trifled with, dealt poor Pritchard such a blow with his beak as to deprive him of one of his mustard-colored eyes. Pritchard's courage was unbatable. He might be compared to that brave field marshal of whom it was said that Mars had left nothing of him whole except his heart. But it was difficult, you see, to make much use of a dog with so many infirmities. If I had wished to sell him, I could not have found a purchaser, nor would he have been considered a handsome present had I desired to give him away. I had no choice but to make this old servant, badly as he had sometimes served me, a pensioner, a companion, in fact, a friend. Some people told me that I might have tied a stone round his neck and flung him into the river, Others, that it was easy to replace him by buying a good retriever from Vatran. But, although I was not yet poor enough to drown Pritchard, neither was I rich enough to buy another dog. However, later in that very year, I made an unexpected success in literature, and one of my plays brought me in a sufficient sum to take a shooting in the department of Yon. 
I went to look at the shooting, taking Pritchard with me. In the meantime, my daughter wrote to tell me that she had bought an excellent retriever for five pounds, named Ketana, and that she was keeping him in the stable until my return. As soon as I arrived, my first care was to make Ketana's acquaintance. He was a rough, vigorous dog of three or four years old, thoughtless, violent, and quarrelsome. He jumped upon me till he nearly knocked me down, upset my daughter's work table, and dashed about the room to the great danger of my china vases and ornaments. I therefore called Michel and informed him that the superficial acquaintance which I had made with Catena would suffice for the time and that I would defer the pleasure of his further intimacy until the shooting season began at Auxerre. Poor Michel! As soon as he saw Catena, he had been seized with the presentiment of evil. Sir, he said, that dog will bring some misfortune upon us. I do not know yet what, but something will happen. I know it will. In the meantime, Michel, I said, you had better take Catena back to the stable. But Ketana had already left the room of his own accord and rushed downstairs to the dining room, where I had left Pritchard. Now Pritchard never could endure Ketana from the first moment he saw him. The two dogs instantly flew at one another with so much fury that Michel was obliged to call me to his assistance before he could separate them. Ketana was once more shut up in the stable, and Pritchard conducted to his kennel in the stable yard, which in the absence of the carriages and horses, was now a poultry yard, inhabited by my eleven hens and my cock Caesar. Pritchard's friendship with the hens continued to be strong as ever, and the household suffered from a scarcity of eggs in consequence. That evening, while my daughter and I were walking in the garden, Michel came to meet us, twisting his straw hat between his fingers, a sure sign that he had something important to say. Well, what is it, Michel? I asked. It came into my mind, sir, he answered, while I was taking Pritchard to his kennel, that we never had any eggs because Pritchard eats them, and he eats them because he is in direct communication with the hens. It is evident, Michel, that if Pritchard never went into the poultry yard, he would not eat the eggs. Then, do you not think, sir, continued Michel, that if we shut up Pritchard in the stable and put Catena into the poultry yard, it would be better? Catena is an animal without education, so far as I know, but he is not such a thief as Pritchard. Do you know what will happen if you do that, Michel? I said. Catena will not eat the eggs, perhaps, but he will eat the hens. If a misfortune like that were to occur, I know a method of curing him of eating hens. Well, but in the meantime the hens would be eaten. Scarcely had I uttered these words when a frightful noise was heard in the stable yard, as loud as that of a pack of hounds in full cry, but mingled with howls of rage and pain which indicated a deadly combat. Michel, I cried, do you hear that? Oh yes, I hear it, he answered, but those must be the neighbor's dogs fighting. Michel, those are Catena and Pritchard killing each other. Impossible, sir. I have separated them. Well, then, they have met again. It is true, said Michel, 
That scoundrel Pritchard can open the stable door as well as anyone. Then you see, Pritchard is a dog of courage. He'll have opened the stable door for Katana on purpose to fight him. Be quick, Michel. I am really afraid one of them will be killed. Michel darted into the passage which led to the stable, and no sooner had he disappeared than I knew from the lamentations which I had heard that some misfortune had happened. In a minute or two, Michel reappeared, sobbing bitterly and carrying Pritchard in his arms. Look, sir, just look, he said. This is the last we will see of Pritchard. Look what your fine sporting dog has done to him. Catena, indeed. It is Catalina he should be called. I ran up to Pritchard, full of concern. I had a great love for him, though he had often made me angry. He was a dog of much originality, and the unexpected things he did were only a proof of genius. What do you think is the matter? I asked Michel. The matter? The matter is that he is dead. Oh no, surely not. Anyhow, he'll never be good for anything again. And he laid him on the ground at my feet. Pritchard, my poor Pritchard, I cried. At the sound of my voice, Pritchard opened his yellow eye and looked sorrowfully at me, then stretched out his four legs, gave one sigh, and died. Katana had bitten his throat quite through, so that his death was almost immediate. Well, Michel, said I, it is not a good servant. It is a good friend that we have lost. You must wash him carefully. You shall have a towel to wrap him in. You shall dig his grave in this garden, and we will have a tombstone made for him on which shall be engraved this epitaph. Like conquering Ratzau, of courage undaunted, Pritchard, to thee Mars honor has granted. On each field of fight of a limb he bereft thee, till naught but thy gallant heart scathless was left thee. As my habit was, I sought consolation for my grief in literary labors. Michel endeavored to assuage his with the help of two bottles of red wine, with which, mingled with his tears, he watered the grave of the departed. I know this because when I came out early next morning to see if my wishes with regard to Pritchard's burial had been carried out, I found Michel stretched upon the ground, still in tears, and the two bottles empty by his side. End of section 17